Let's go. Let's go. Oh, no. Do you want to? Sorry. I'll let you. I'll let you. I'm excited and I feel relaxed and I'm ready to party. Don't say sorry. You don't need to do that. You don't need to apologize. It's a fucked up female habit. You don't need to be sorry for anything ever. Can you guess what every woman's worst nightmare is? I don't have rage issues! I have nothing to prove to you. When I'm good, I'm very good. But when I'm bad, I'm better. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we don't always agree on everything and that is okay. I'm Karen <laughs> Peterson, joined by Lauren Everysburg. That's an understatement. <laughs> um, hello, yes. <laughs> a slight understatement. But honestly, we, we we agree more often than we don't, I think. I, I think that we do. And actually, the topic of today's podcast, I think we we largely agree on. So so that's yeah. that's a good thing, definitely. Yes, there are other things that we might have conversations <laughs> about. Uh, <laughs> Occasionally. Occasionally uh anyway well how are you Lauren? i'm doing all right it's been kind of a weird week but uh yeah doing good looking forward to halloween that will be fun it is unseasonably warm here in upstate new york which is just kind of creepy and wrong uh it was like 73 a couple days ago so this is this is not right there's something wrong something is off in the universe yeah that's weird it's 52 here in california so I don't know. It's, war it's warmer here than it is there. <laughs> Up is down, left is right. It's like we're living in a Lovecraft adaptation. Jesus. Yes, but I'm <laughs> waiting for the non-Euclidean geometry. That's what I'm waiting for. You, They haven't given it to me yet. <laughs> I want true. some non-Euclidean geometry. <laughs> oh, I, I well. I oh, saw sorry. a podcast. I well, I was just gonna I was just gonna say that I saw a podcast or uh, a um a TikTok actually earlier that was like listing all of the things that Lovecraft is frightened of, like <laughs> like historically that we know that he was scared of that he wrote about being frightened of, and it like it literally ranges from like geometry to salad. Like he, <laughs> there he was afraid of vegetables. <laughs> so which explains an awful lot about him. Anyways, yes, let's yes. go on. <laughs> Yes. Well, today we are not specifically talking about Lovecraft, but we are talking about Guillermo del Toro, who is he has kind of become a modern day horror master, I would say. Um, he has built quite a career on horror movies. His first feature film was Kronos, which is basically a vampire movie. Um I didn't get a chance to watch it beforehand, but he also, before that, he did a, just on the subject of being scared of funny things. Um, he directed a short film. I think that was like one of his very first things, probably a student project that is apparently available on YouTube. And it's about a kid who's mad about failing geometry. So he summons a demon. <laughs> and that child was HP Lovecraft. <laughs> Uh, pretty much anyway so um but yeah so today we're going to talk about Guillermo del Toro um partly because he has a new series on Netflix right now which is called the cabinet of curiosities and um it's a whole collection it's like um it's eight 
separate basically short films and uh they're all by different directors he didn't direct any of them but he introduces them all sort of in that um twilight zone kind of way so very fun um but before we we get into cabinet of curiosities we want to talk a little bit about some of the other films that led to where he is today um he was born in 1964 in mexico and uh started making movies back in the 90s he was uh let's see he won an oscar for the shape of water he actually won um directing and that movie won best picture and uh he was nominated in 2006 for writing pan's labyrinth and then uh last year he was nominated he was part of the producing team that was nominated for nightmare alley which got a best picture nomination so uh he has made movies that are delightful to fans and also have won over the academy so he's had quite an interesting career um he so i don't know how you want to do this i was kind of thinking let's talk a little bit just in general why do we love guillermo del toro and then we can talk more specifically about some of his movies so lauren why do you love guillermo del toro I think the first time I was ever really aware of him was um, Pan's Labyrinth, when Pan's Labyrinth came out. And uh, and I remember specifically one of my friends seeing it. Uh, this was when I was like in college. And one of my friends seeing it and being like, it is the most disturbing movie I have ever seen. And what she what she fixated on, understandably, is, is a scene in Pan's Labyrinth where one of the characters actually slices, um, like he, he gets his cheek sliced open. And then he he has to stitch it closed again, and it's it is very disturbing and everything. Um, but I I remember going to see it. I was just like, I don't know what you're talking about. That this is the most disturbing movie you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. I was so confused. It's a it's a disturbing movie in a lot of ways. But there, there's a lot more in in that film. I think that that is very dark and distressing than um than the cheek slicing moment. <laughs> uh, but 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 I I think that Del Toro. First of all, Del Toro, in a lot of ways, and I this this might be anathema to say, but um, he he's he reminds me a little bit of Taika Waititi, or Taika Waititi reminds me a little bit of Del Toro in the sense that it, he's not ju- just just a director, but he's very much interested in kind of purveying a particular kind of film, of supporting creators, of sort of not just using his own kind of clout to to get his own films made, but to to kind of bring other people along with him. And I really like that about him. I, I it's he's one of those directors and producers that obviously loves film and loves, and particularly in this case, he loves horror. He loves fairy tales. He really engages with them, you know, and and I mean thing things like, you know, he's got a whole there's a whole series of penguin classics that um are like classic horror stories that he wrote the introductions for. Things like that, where he's just really cares about his genres. He really cares about film. And he really wants to make something that's interesting and that appeals to people. And that is very, ultimately, despite the subject matter of a lot of his stuff, very positive and very, like, about dealing with trauma and violence and monstrosity and what monstrosity actually looks like. So I just really like that in him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I agree. Um, I think it's it's fun the way that he explores different ideas but i especially love how much he gets so excited 
about film. Like he gets he gets so excited to talk about his own movies. He gets so excited to talk about other people's movies. Like he doesn't have ego or if he does, it does not show, you know, like he just he's very enthusiastic and such a champion um, for for other people. I mean, that's why we're going to talk a little bit about all the stuff that he's produced and all the directors that he's worked with and and specifically the directors that um, got to contribute to Cabinet of Curiosities, too. Um and I just, it's so fun. He, he just, it's impossible to listen to him speak and not just like get excited about whatever it is that he's talking about. And, um, and I just, I love that. Um, you know, there's just fun little facts. Like he's talked openly about how The Shape of Water is his own favorite movie out of all the movies that he's done. I don't know if that's still, still true. Um, but it's just funny that he would actually, say that you know like parents don't admit which one which child is their favorite (laughs) and he's like yeah it's this one and the fact that he almost didn't make that movie you know and and there's so many things in his career that are that are like that but I my introduction was also Pan's Labyrinth and well I thought it was it turned out I actually saw Mimic but I had no idea who he was at the time that I saw that um when that came out back in the 90s so um yeah, I just, I, I, he has like off screen or I guess like away from movies. I just, I love his, his personality and, and his open support for other people and their projects. But then I just, I really love his films too. I think that he explores really interesting themes and I think he does them in such a beautiful way. And um, he's, he's just all around. He's a really talented director. I know that you and I, disagreed one of the few times on nightmare alley um but even that movie even if you don't like it story-wise it's beautiful and and really well crafted so oh definitely i i think i was disappointed in some ways with nightmare alley for a couple of different reasons but um but yeah and and i i do think that he obviously puts a lot of himself into his films it's very much what he wants his films to be and and he's struggled uh particularly with hollywood and with like you know for a long time he was trying to get um at the mountains of madness produced and that just like kept on kept on getting pushed away it never worked you know mm-hmm. he he got um he wanted to do his own kind of interpretation of the hobbit that didn't work uh it took him years to be able to get hellboy because he was fighting with the studio over casting ron perlman in the lead role yeah so and i'm glad that he's become so successful still despite all of those issues and has kind of you know, I keep on going like, so are we going to get at the Mountains of Madness? Come on, let's do it. Let's, you know, <laughs> he's got all of this clout now, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. let's just make the movie. Yeah, um, seriously. Um, but, but yeah, but he, he's, he's been very persistent, obviously, in realizing the kinds of films that he wants to make. And like I said, when, and when he began to get um, more power as a director and more power as a producer, he's used that to help other people make those kinds of films. And I, yeah, I, I really like that, that. He keeps on kind of driving forward and being like, this is the sort of art I want to create. And he's doing it within a system, obviously, but it's not like, oh, fuck the system. You know, the system is corrupt or anything like that. It's just like, no, I'm going to keep on trying to do what I need to do. And he's succeeding at it. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about some of his specific work. First of all, 
Um, he has directed a number of films, but also, as we've mentioned, he's been not just like helping out championing his friends, but he's become quite a producer too mm-hmm. of a lot of, of horror projects as well. So um, I don't know which way we should do this. Um, we can talk about the films that he's directed and then talk about some of the stuff that he's produced that yeah, in a lot of ways feel like um, Guillermo del Toro works too. So um, have you seen Kronos? I have seen Kronos. It's been a while since I saw Kronos. I actually didn't like it. <laughs> uh, it's it's one of those. And and I think the part of it is that I have a very specific idea about what vampire movies should be. Mm-hmm. And so when they depart from that, I am like, no, I don't like it. Um, so that's totally on me. That's, that's personal preference. This <laughs> does not say that Kronos is a bad movie or anything. I think that it is a good movie in the sense that it does exactly what it is supposed to do like it does it's not um breaking out from its uh, from its own you know concepts it's not badly paced or anything like that um unlike a certain movie that i just recently saw uh (laughs) so so yeah so it chronos is one of those that like it's it's very much in the kind of goopy gross vampire (laughs) movie (laughs) stories which I appreciate, you know, people are into that. People like that. I think that one of the things that that kind of puts me off about some of Del Toro's work is that he isn't some of the goopy, gross stuff. Um, I prefer my vampires sexy. Uh, (laughs) That is my feeling about it. But it it is a well-made film in a lot of ways. And I think the first one that he worked with uh, Ron Perlman on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's also his very first film that he, feature film that he directed. And yeah, and... So for anybody who hasn't seen Kronos, um, it's pretty much all in, in Spanish. It's uh, There's a little bit of English in it, but it's pretty much all Spanish with subtitles. And um, it basically is, it's very unconventional. It's not a straightforward vampire movie. It's basically about this this old man who has a an antique shop and he comes across this device that attaches to his skin and um anytime that he allows it to do so it kind of sucks years like it it kind of gives him life back not sucks years away but kind of sucks out some of the old (laughs) basically and um so that's so it's this device that's been around for hundreds of years it's kind of been lost to um to history and so then ron perlman plays the son or the nephew of this old man who's dying who's been searching for this device for years because he wants to save his own life. And so they're basically going after this sweet old guy um, who has inadvertently found it and has become quite dependent on it. But what I really love about Kronos is the relationship that this old man has with his granddaughter. And um, I actually was watching um, like an intro. I have the, the, um criterion set and Guillermo was talking he was doing kind of an intro and talking about the this was a film the script he actually wrote when he was in school and he based the relationship of the granddaughter and the grandfather um on his own relationship with his grandmother who he was really close to and I just I love the two of them they're so they're so sweet together and this little girl she doesn't talk much. She's very, very quiet through the whole thing, but 
she and so it's like she's also a little kid so you never quite know how much she really understands about how dangerous all of this is and and what's really happening but she gets it and she's just kind of like you know my grandpa is the most important thing here and uh, it's just such a sweet relationship and that's i think why that movie really works so well for me i i like thinking about that and, and i think about one of the other films that we're going to talk about uh the, his use del toro's use of children mm -hmm. i think is really effective and and he he's been using them less actually uh, in some of his later films but like the use of children and the idea of childhood as being kind of that point of you know that point where magic still exists the supernatural still exists right that that kind of veil between the worlds is much thinner as it were um and i really like that that you know one of the things you talk about when it comes to stuff like pan's labyrinth is like well is this 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 child's fantasy world that she's creating or is this a real world and I do think that the film essentially says that this is a real world, but it's also a fantasy world. Mm -hmm. It isn't, you know, it's it's not that sensation of like, this is all in her head in, in the same way. Um, but that kind of like that way, that understanding and sensitivity to the way that children think of the world and the way that children make sense of violence and trauma and danger and what they care about and what they don't care about um is is really important and so intrinsic to a lot particularly to a lot of his early films uh and and i really i really like i like that i like the fact that it's that hauntingness of childhood that not not completely understanding exactly what's happening in the adult world but also understanding it better in a certain sense because you can see the monstrosity of adults, you can see the monstrosity around you, and you kind of make them into these these vile fairy tale creatures. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, speaking of creatures, but not necessarily fairy tale creatures. <laughs> so his next movie is Mimic, and this is his first um, American film, his first fully English language film. Um, and have you seen Mimic? I have seen this one time in the theater and that was it <laughs> <laughs> i've seen it one time solely because i had a bit of a thing for jeremy northam uh, -huh. uh and that was that was it so i have very little memory of it except again it was i remember thinking that it was a perfectly serviceable film but it wasn't particularly like memorable in any sense yeah i don't remember much about it either um i do remember the cast i mean mira sorvino like you mentioned jeremy northam he was very popular in the mid 90s <laughs> uh charles s dutton josh brolin f murray abraham and uh for fans of the walking dead baby norman reedus is in that as well um but it just yeah i don't have a lot of memories i just know that it involved bugs and specifically cockroaches and i don't do cockroaches so Ooh. it's that same kind of you know again what i was said with with chronos and that pops up in a lot of of del toro's films is that goopiness mm -hmm. there's there's a lot of like creepy bugs um you know kind of <laughs> yeah uh gooey skeletons you know stuff like that where it's just like ah we're gonna we're gonna go with the 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 juicy the juicy things mm -hmm. in these movies um and that comes up a lot in in his films to, to greater and lesser degrees depending upon the subject matter <laughs> so the next film he does and they, there's a couple of years in between because it used to be that directors you know 
could take some time in between movies. Now it feels like everybody's working 24 hours a day. But um, anyway, so a couple years later, then he goes back and does another film in Spanish. This time it's set in Spain during the Spanish Civil War. And this is The Devil's Backbone. And I'm going to have you talk about this one. This was your Citizen Dane pick of the week. So this, yeah, this is one of, I think, one of his best films. And um, this and, and Pan's Labyrinth are, I think, two of the best films that he's made. And part of it is going back to exactly what I was talking about with this this chi- this childhood element, the the childhood experience of trauma and how that translates. And one of the things that I really like about this film, and it, again, it comes up in a number of different places, is using ghosts as not as evil things, right? Not as and and he's actually talked about that horror and fairy tales have kind of two different sides to them one being kind of a reinforcement of the establishment don't go into the woods sort of um elements of of fairy tales that are like warnings about you know don't depart from the path kind of thing and that there are the other side are kind of anarchic anti-establishment horror films and i think that he treads the line in a lot of them but one of the things that i really like about the devil's backbone is that you've got these child ghosts Right. Um, and and it is about the monstrosity of human beings. It's not about the monstrosity of ghosts. It's not about the monstrosity of, you know, things beyond the pale. It is people here right now that are creating monsters that are creating themselves, turning themselves into monsters and have to be destroyed as a result of it. And uh, that's something that I really like, that he manages to get to get this this sensation of being sympathetic to monsters um of, of like the things that are made into monsters i guess so the ghosts the goblins the demons the um creepy creatures etc and and to really understand that they are not the things that we should be afraid of yeah um we should be afraid of the people who are creating them essentially yeah and and he does that so beautifully in the devil's backbone and in this case i mean there is a ghost and it's kind of a creepy looking ghost but you see the tragedy of that character and and what happened to him and he's not out to attack everybody or or you know exact his revenge on anybody who happens to be nearby it's not that kind of a story and um and i think one of the things that also makes some of his horror films so effective in general but especially in the devil's backbone is that um a lot of times he uses he really he really incorporates the audience's imagination into it so it's like he doesn't necessarily rely on a lot of jump scares and he does get goopy and gross but even then he's pretty sparing in when he chooses to do that especially um it's especially evident in like chronos and the devil's backbone where it's not um it's not wall-to-wall like scary stuff it's like the tension builds and you really spend a lot of time with the living characters and and seeing who to really be afraid of and who not to unfolds very carefully and it's very calculated and it's done very very well um it's it's really a great exercise in character and story development i think in the devil's backbone yeah it 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 very much is and um and the the ghost it's interesting because for a ghost story <laughs> it the ghost doesn't figure in as much as you actually think that it would right uh and 
um yeah like, like i say the the human element of monstrosity is is really what the autor is interested in and that feeds into then pan's labyrinth which is also set in the spanish civil war and is also kind of um interacting with very similar themes of the things that and it, it is it does go back to what i you know what he, i was just saying that that he was saying about fairy tales and about horror the things that we're told to be frightened of by authority are very often the things that we should not be afraid of. Yeah. They might be the things that authority is afraid of. And that's that's something that I think works really well with this whole concept that we've talked about in horror before um, about the return of the repressed. And very often, you know, there are all of these horror stories that are about the repressed coming back and exacting vengeance for something, right? Um, and usually it's told from the perspective of the of the oppressor, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So it's saying like, you know, we keep on stamping these things down and then they bubble up and they erupt in different ways. Um, and one of the things I like about Del Toro is that in a certain sense, he's he's not indulging in that. He's not saying like, we are going to, you know, stamp the ghost down again. Um, we're not going to conquer the evil repressed. We are actually going to bring up that trauma and we are going to deal with it. And we are going to, you know, out the, the true monsters that, that walk among us. Right. Yeah. It really is such a, such a beautiful film, like in, in so many sad and tragic ways, but it's really, really well done. Um, all three of these, by the way, and several of his others are all available on HBO max right now. So if you haven't seen any of these, go check that, go check those out. They're all well worth your time. You may not, I mean, the thing is, mileage may vary. I really am not into Mimic, but I know other people are. Um, and I just, I think that these are definitely films that are good to, good to at least watch. And they're, they're very formative. So, um, so he directed one other film that is definitely very straightforward horror. And that is Crimson Peak from 2015. Um, there's a couple others we're going to talk about, like, is this, is it not? But uh, Crimson Peak um, is an interesting film. I think this is one of his cheesier movies. Um, and But uh, that's kind of an understatement. <laughs> um, but I, I just, I love the gothic, big haunted house, you know, um, mansion thing. This girl being isolated from everything in this place that she doesn't know the movie stars tom hiddleston jessica chastain and mia wasikowska um i think this one's actually on netflix not on uh hbo max but um but it is available out there to stream and this is about a girl who kind of ends up swept up in a marriage and ending up in this creepy old house with her new husband and his really weird sister <laughs> and there are ghosts <laughs> and there's just a lot of craziness that that uh <laughs> see i i don't find this film cheesy and i think oh, the reason okay. and the reason for that is and i don't know about your feelings about gothic literature karen mm -hmm. i love gothic literature gothic literature is insane yeah um, i haven't and i honestly haven't read that much so and well, but I, I think that that's what I think that this film, in some ways, it was done a disservice when it was released because it was kind of treated as like, oh, it's from the director of Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, this is Guillermo del Toro. You know, he's doing horror movie. And it's a it definitely has a lot of horror elements to it. And it's definitely like a, a gothic romance. But it isn't horror in the traditional sense that I think we think of, even in the traditional sense of something like Devil's Backbone. Mm -hmm. Um 
or or Kronos, you know, or, or Blade, any of those. Uh, there's, it's it's very much in the kind of milieu of uh, of the gothic novel of the sort of mysterious bachelor, the weird family, the weird house, the the girl who's kind of swept away by all of this, um, the the idea that you know the ghosts in the attic kind of thing. uh and and it's doing something different with that but it's very much working within that tradition and so i i think that if you meet the film at that point if you say like okay i under you know i want to i'm working within this particular tradition and i am kind of entering into the the genre that this film is is depicting then it stops being quite as cheesy and becomes more like okay this is just crazy and weird and fun and horrific etc um And so I think that that's that's kind of one of the issues with that film is that a lot of people came at it from like, oh, this is a horror movie. What the fuck? <laughs> now, to be clear, I love it. I think it's a lot of fun. I just I do find it to be pretty cheesy. But one of the things that I love so much about it is how committed the actors are to uh, to their roles. They're, oh. they're in it. They are having a blast. Oh, everybody's there. Jessica Chastain, I think, is having the time of her life. Like, yeah. I've never seen Jessica Chastain so happy. It's so true. She's just like, she's just like, this is, I was born for this role. I'm going to go for it. Like, uh, but, but yeah, definitely. So that that's where I think that if the audience is willing to enter into that kind of space with, with the film and with the actors, it's more enjoyable than if you're kind of resisting it at some level. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I do think, you know, I was I, I like gothic literature and gothic literature is all about this, this sort of thing. But I always think about the fact that one of the first gothic novels uh, is The Castle of Otranto. The entire book opens with a gigantic helmet falling from the sky and crushing a groom on his wedding day. Like, that's how the story opens. That's what? Called what? <laughs> uh, the, ca right now. <laughs> the Castle of Otranto. It's okay. one of the first kind of known Gothic novels. It's it's considered to be one of the first Gothic novels. And it gets weirder from that point. <laughs> that's the thing. And, I, and when I tell you, when I say that a helmet falls from the sky and crushes a bridegroom, that is literally what happens. It's a helmet that falls from the sky. It oh does not gosh. fall from a... statue or they it it appears <laughs> and when i first read this book i was like are you what and like i went back and reread it i was like yep that's 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 what happens uh yeah so i i do recommend that but i i think that that's kind of a good way maybe a little bit of understanding what sort of genre to del toro is working and whether or not that works for you ultimately mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but that's definitely what he's up to with Crimson Peak. Yeah, I love Crimson Peak. I think it's great fun. Yeah, it really is. So, um, okay, so he's also okay. So he's also directed a couple of movies that have been debated a lot of whether they qualify as horror films, and it's interesting because we were actually talking about this a little bit before we started. Um, before we actually started this episode, and that's um, you know, all of his. movies tend to have some element of actually literally a monster or the monstrous or something like that i mean he even directed one episode of the simpsons and of course it was a treehouse of horror episode you know um this is this is kind of his thing this is what he loves to do but a couple of very specific movies that have gotten people asking is this horror is this not horror um those are pan's labyrinth and the shape of water so um I think for me, 
Pan's Labyrinth, I think, definitely is in that world of that cross, that perfect cross between horror and fantasy. And I think it does qualify as a horror movie, but it's also a fantasy movie and it's also a drama. I think it really is all of these things combined. I think that that qualifies as a horror movie. I personally don't think the same about The Shape of Water, but I would love to know what you think. Um, I, I agree with you with Pan's Labyrinth. I don't think you can have characters like the Skin Man right. uh, and and things like that without really edging in, in the direction of horror. It's also a fairy tale. It's also, it does have a folk horror element to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in fact, that's that's a lot of what he's in dialogue with in that film. So I think that that's, yeah, I, I would, if you, if you press me, I would probably say fantasy, but fantasy horror. Yeah. Um, when it comes to Shape of Water, I because part of the reason why I think Shape of Water can qualify as a horror film is because of the again that dialogue between um between the 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 current film and um kind of what spawned it and it's very much spawned from Creature of the uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon and which is very you know usually accepted as a horror film true um and. And I think that I think that one of the reasons why people kind of resist calling it a horror is because the horror is not the creature. The horror is the um, the horror is the man. Right. Mm -hmm. And that and again, you know, going back to that, that monstrosity. So it's not a supernatural film in the same way as like The Devil's Backbone or Kronos, but it is very much about human monstrosity and violence and violation um and it's also a romance but you know horror movies have romance in them too yeah totally uh so yeah i think i would definitely shape of what shape of water is definitely a monster movie and so i think in that sense it is it has to be qualified as a horror film um in this particular case the monster is is a human being who is truly truly monstrous mm-hmm. yeah i I'm... Yeah, I mean, I could see it both ways. I feel like both of these movies, Pan's Labyrinth and The Shape of Water, do kind of dip into both horror and fairy tale, like you were saying. Um, To me, Pan's Labyrinth is more clearly also a horror movie than The Shape of Water is. But but yeah, that's one of the things that that Del Toro does very well is examine the monstrous within people. Mm And that's very much on display here. Michael Shannon's character in that movie is very much the monster in that movie. And he becomes more monstrous as the film goes on. Like as he yeah, becomes, he gets injured and he becomes more angry and more, just more like unstoppable in, in ways. So Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's, he becomes almost a, a Michael Myers character. Yeah. You know, he's, he's like, first of all, he's literally decaying, right? Mm-hmm. As the film goes on. And yeah, it's that eruption of all of, you know, talking about all of those repressed things, all of the things that have kind of been uh, sort of repressed in him, controlled at some level by his, his own sense of his superiority. When he is met with a fact that he is not superior, that he's actually monstrous, that he isn't the good guy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all of that begins to fray at the edges. And so he literally begins to decay within himself. Um, mentally, physically, etc., and and so yeah, I mean, I would definitely the the whole film even opens with with talking about you know this is this is a story of a monster and a man or something like that, mm-hmm. um, and 
And I, I think that the other side of it is, you know, that the romance element, which is so heavy in in the Shape of Water, it is very much about the relationship between the creature and um, Eliza. Uh, sorry, what? Eliza. Eliza, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it is about that relationship, and that you know, I think kind of skews it a little bit because we're we're more focused on the romance. Um, but uh, yeah, I I think I would still call it a horror movie. Okay. What I love about his movies is that there is room for debate. You can talk about this and have these kind of conversations. It's not yeah, a lot of forward. Exactly. A lot of them don't fall into these really easy genre categories. Like mm -hmm. they're they're not. And it's interesting that the ones that don't are the ones who have, that have gotten the most accolades. It's true. It's uh, true. Pan's, Pan's Labyrinth and The Shape of Water. Well, I think a big part of the reason is because um, a lot of people think they don't like horror. And when you introduce them to things that are horror adjacent or that are not only horror, um, they tend to be more open to that. You know, I've had conversations mm -hmm. with friends about how Ghostbusters and Gremlins are horror comedy. And they're like, but I don't like horror movies. It's funny. And I'm like, OK, that's fine. But there's still horror elements to it. Like you guess what? You like a horror movie. <laughs> and uh, they argue with me about that. But <laughs> are they. Uh, I, I think a lot of people consider horror to be, you know, slasher movies. Yeah. The kind of again, the, the and there's nothing against that necessarily, right? The very, the very sort of straightforward, obviously, you know, genre specific um, horror movies, and and they don't they don't think beyond that, you yeah. know. And I, think I, I do horror think... is only scary and it's only gross, and yeah. they don't like those things, so they therefore don't like horror. And it's like, no, there's so much that and, uh, that qualifies and and that the point is to be scared right? right the point is to be frightened and there are different kinds of fear as as we know jump scares i actually love jump scares but uh but the, that's a very immediate sudden you know it's like ah you you surprised me kind of thing it's funny i hate um, jump scares <laughs> <laughs> i love i love good jump scares like where when the filmmaker is really good at building up to it and you like you know it's coming but you're just like i i know it's coming but i don't it, when is it gonna happen like i really <laughs> like that um it's that it's that you know building up of tension but the, those are you know comparatively fairly cheap scares right yeah. they're not something that's going to stick with you uh um but yeah but there are different kinds of horror there's uh and and there are things that again i think that we have this tendency to, to be like okay there's a monster who's the bad guy and then there's everybody else that the monster kind of menaces and when you get these films that are more nuanced than that uh, and very often even those films even the the films where there's a monster and, and the the person the people that that the monster menaces um, even those films are still very nuanced and and can be very complicated. But so when you get more complicated beyond that, people go like, "Oh, it's not a horror movie. It's you know, it's it's an elevated horror movie or whatever." <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that term. Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah. So let's talk about some of the things that he has produced um, that have really helped build other careers too. Um, one of the earliest films that he produced that's not one of his own was the orphanage um which was directed by uh j.a bayona who i think also did mama and um uh, i'm trying to think what else he has done um but anyway he's i mean he he 
I think he was the showrunner on Rings of Power, which is the new Lord of the Rings show too. So I mean, he's doing quite well for himself these days. Yeah, he also did a Monster Calls. Oh yeah, and Marrowbone. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, and then also Rings of Power. Yeah, I have not seen the orphanage. I've seen clips of the orphanage, and it was pretty <laughs> creepy. Um, very creepy. <laughs> but I have not actually watched the whole movie yet. So. <laughs> um uh, did you want to talk about it at all or i i get gonna... again one of one of these that i i have not seen in a while but i remember really liking it mm-hmm. and um and it does it's it's interesting because a lot of del toro a lot of the films that del toro produced feel like films that he directed like i always forget that he didn't direct the orphanage yeah um because it's it's very similar it's like the 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 little boy ghost kind of thing, the the child ghosts, um, the kind of dialogue with trauma and with loss and with grief, uh, you know, and and yes, many horror films are about trauma. I know that this is something that apparently we don't like or that we argue just say, oh, now our films are all about trauma. It's just like, yeah, most of them are. Yeah, because um, <laughs> guess what? People have been traumatized since the beginning. Why the fuck do you think there were so many popular horror films post World War One? Mm-hmm. That's when horror became this major force in filmmaking. Exactly. Jesus. Exactly. And then post World War Two. Oh, we've got like nineteen fifty. What the fuck do you think nineteen fifties monster movies are if not dealing with trauma? Jesus. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so the orphanage definitely has a lot of dialogue with it. It's very similar, actually, in a lot of ways to uh, Devil's Backbone. Yeah. Um, and but it's it's a very well done film and everything. It definitely it feels a lot like a Del Toro film, and it's one of those where I'm like, are we sure he didn't direct this? Positive, he just like, just like I come in and be like, oh, I'll I'll do it, I'll do it. It's okay. We'll put your name on it, but I'll do it. It's kind of like the Poltergeist. <laughs> Was this really directed by Spielberg or or Toby Hooper? Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, we'll we'll never know for sure. Um, but yeah, uh, but this one very much, and like it's it's actually pretty pretty true of a lot of the stuff that he has produced so far where there really does it's like i don't know if he's putting his his mark on some of these things if these directors are kind of using him like using his experience and his career to help them kind of shape their stories or if he's just choosing to sign on to produce projects that really feel like stuff that he would make like it's it's really who knows but some of the other things that he has produced um were splice which is definitely another one that feels like a del toro movie um that's got to do with genetic engineering and very oh that one's creepy too um uh let's see he also produced mama which was by the guy who did the orphanage j.a bayona um and let's see um and of course scary stories to tell in the dark Mm-hmm. which we talked a lot about antlers which came out last year did you ever see antlers i didn't that has been on my list for a while it got i remember it getting a bit panned uh mm-hmm. due to some of the subject matter i still want to see it but i it kind of fell down on my list after a number of people were like this is really problematic yeah yeah i did see antlers i was going to write about it but it was one that i was just like i don't really know what to say because i don't know how i feel about it and i've only seen it the one time i haven't watched it again i really should watch it again um i think that the the visuals of this monster and of some of what happens are really good 
but I think the story is um, a little bit lacking. It's a little bit problematic. And I think that it's also not developed particularly well. I feel like so much of it was, mm. I mean, there's a, there's like a twist to it that I guessed in the opening scene. Like I knew right away what was going on. <laughs> and I don't know if I was supposed to, I don't know if it was supposed to be a big surprise, but it was not a big surprise, but um, it's uh, for anybody who's not aware of what antlers is. It's set in this remote town, like in the Pacific Northwest. And um, there's this little boy who, um, well, not, he's not little, he's actually older than he looks, but he's like in junior high. Um, and his teacher is Carrie Russell. And she's taken this particular, like, she's concerned about this kid because she starts to see that he's really withdrawn. Um, he's drawing these very strange, creepy pictures and stuff. And something's not right with this kid. Plus, he's being bullied, all that stuff. And um, so she starts to take an interest in trying to figure out what's going on with him and his, and uh, is he safe? What's going on with his family? That kind of thing. But there is a monster lurking in the woods and um, her brother is the sheriff and he's investigating these strange deaths. And um, yeah, I, I, I don't know how well it all comes together. I, this is one of those where it's like, I'd really love for you to watch it so that we could talk about it <laughs> um i i do plan on watching it it's like like i say i think that some of the critical response this is one time and i i shouldn't let this happen but I, sometimes i do where the critical response actually does shape yeah my choices about watching the movie so it's it's one of those that i've had on my list and then i i want to watch but i've just been like mm, i don't feel de a desperate need to watch it yeah, it's definitely not one to rush out and see. It is available on HBO Max as well. Mm. Um, but it's it's such a it's such a strange movie, and it's one that I feel like again you really see that Guillermo del Toro flavor to it. This is Scott Cooper is the director. Um, he directed Hostiles, and it's <laughs> I think this might be his first movie without Christian Bale. Um, but uh, it's definitely his first horror movie. So he. Um, He's the guy who directed Out of the Furnace. He did. Okay. Um, um, what's that other one with uh, Johnny Depp as Whitey Bulger? Um, oh. Um, I can't fuck. think of what it's called. I know, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's that guy. He's directed those movies. And so this is his first, his first uh, journey into horror and uh, Black Mass. That's what it's called. Yeah. And um, yeah, he has a new movie coming out too, again with Christian Bale. But uh, anyway, um, yeah, I just there are a lot of things that I actually liked about Antlers. I I didn't feel as um, vigilant, I guess, against it as other people did. Um, and like I said, the creature effects and things are really really good. But I think the story has some glaring well, problems. So. I, I do I do wonder because I know that that Del Toro is obviously very much into creature effects and makeup yeah. and particularly practical effects. So trying to use and and uh, does this they 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 do this in the productions of the Cabinet of Curiosities episodes as well. Trying to use creature effects themselves as much as possible. Mm -hmm. um, so not tons of CGI, right? True. And and to make it kind of and, and I think it does make it more tactile, makes it more realistic in a lot of ways. 
um, partially just because of the reactions to the actress. But I, I do kind of wonder whether some of that, you know, feeds into the the his, you know, the things that he produces, where he's making, he's giving kind of filmmakers this opportunity and this availability of not just, you know, his his ability as a producer, but also like his production company um and and his knowledge and the knowledge of the the people that he works with of uh special effects and creature effects and stuff like that yeah well let's talk about cabinet of curiosities now shall we let's okay let's <laughs> so cabinet of curiosities is um this is a new anthology series we've had one season they have not announced if there will be more but i kind of think there will be more um and so this was done. It was an interesting thing for Netflix. It's like a Fortnite event. Back in the day, back in the 1900s, we used to have these like like limited series event type of things. Like it was really big to do with Stephen King adaptations where it'd be, you know, the stand was eight hours long and they would do it two nights, two hours a night for four nights in a row, you know, that kind of thing. And that's what they did here with Cabinet of Curiosities. So it's eight episodes um and they did they released two per night they started on tuesday and then the last one came out on friday and they'll they'll stay on netflix it's not like oh if you didn't watch them they're gone but so they're still there you can just watch the whole thing but it was just a fun fun kind of event to watch people having these conversations on twitter uh, about which ones they were watching and their thoughts and stuff that didn't quite reach the same you know water cooler level as as we used to get with these things because you know some people didn't have time to watch them all week and are gonna just binge them this weekend or whatever but it was still a really fun um a fun idea and i'm so glad that they tried it and so um there are eight the first two um uh, let me i meant to pull up the list but the um, lot lot 36, lot 36 yeah so the lot, graveyard rats right so Lot 36 was directed by Guillermo Navarro, who actually came from being a cinematographer. He um, he worked he has worked with Del Toro a lot. He won the Academy Award for Cinematography for Pan's Labyrinth in 2006. Fun fact. Um, and uh, so Lot 36. Did you watch that one? Yeah, I, I've seen I've seen five out of the eight episodes. Unfortunately, I haven't haven't been able to get to all of them. Tried really hard, but did not succeed. Yeah, um, but yeah, I saw saw both Lot Thirty Six and the Graveyard Rats, which I I think are such good like kind of introductions almost because they're uh -huh. shorter, right? They're not yeah. like they're they're both like about forty minutes, forty five minutes, and they're like just these fun, nasty little horror stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I did personally think Lot 36 was not as strong. And I it's weird because I like Tim Blake Nelson. I think he's a really good actor generally. But I felt like he was not great in this, which was very surprising to me. Um, but I like the idea of the story. So basically you have this guy who has a bunch of debts. And he's become one of those people who buys storage lockers that have been... Um, um, not foreclosed, but um, people have been evicted because they haven't paid for their storage unit. And um, so then what happens when, when that happens is then people come along and they buy the unit and then they sell whatever they can out of it and make their money. And that's what this guy is doing. Tim Blake Nelson plays, plays this guy who's got a lot of debt and he's um, 
trying to to make up for that and so he buys the storage locker lot 36 and um then he discovers something in the storage unit and it is very creepy <laughs> see um, i i like i liked lot 36 i did want it to be longer yeah um because there's a lot of lead up to it and it, i think it builds very well but then we get kind of there there's a section where that's basically exposition right mm -hmm. um so like let me explain to you what is happening here and and then you kind of get the climax and and the the conclusion to everything so i wanted it actually I, I feel like if they had stretched it out a little bit more and let it be more like an hour long it actually would have been a stronger episode because they would have had more time to kind of set everything up yeah um before you really get to the horror of it true and one thing i like about this and also graveyard rats like it's a great intro to this to this series it's really fun watching people get what's coming to them too and you get that in lot 36 this guy he is not very nice to people and he has an opportunity to help someone out and chooses not to because he's a jerk and um, he faces consequences for that later. And it's so great. <laughs> I love that. Um, I love when people get what's coming to them. It's very satisfying for me. Um, so Graveyard Rats was directed by Vincenzo Natali, who um, worked with Del Toro on Splice. Actually, he's the director of Splice. And um, this is one of those things that we were talking about with, with Del Toro where he really does, you know, root for people. He has his friends and he wants to to help them. So all of these, everybody who directed one of these episodes, um, they're directors who have worked on other things before, but not necessarily getting the attention and the budgets that they deserve. And he's just like, hey, I'm going to let you do whatever you want on this. And it's, it's really fun. So Graveyard Rats is about a grave robber who um, has been basically robbing wealthy graves and dealing with rats and i love the visual when they've just newly buried this guy and it's only been a couple hours he's like obviously the rats couldn't have gotten to him yet and he opens the grave and he looks in just in time to see the body disappearing in this hole <laughs> i love that so much it's so funny <laughs> I, I love this whole idea of rats like being particularly against this one particular guy yes right? like the, they're just like you know what we hate everybody but fuck this guy like uh -huh. this guy we're gonna make life really difficult for him i really liked graveyard rats uh it it troubled me to the point that i actually had bad dreams about it because Ooh. the i am not particularly claustrophobic generally but that level of a tight space <laughs> and and so much of this this episode is spent underground actually yeah. in like tunnels it's true. and and that, and I think that combination of the tight space and the idea that you are like six feet or more underground. So if you scream, no one's going to hear you, you know, all of that stuff is just very troubling and it's very well done. And yeah, at the same time, we've got that, that element of this is not a good person. Like this is not a person we're really rooting for, but we're also kind of concerned about his well-being at the same time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very, very well done. Um, and just a, a great performance from this guy too. Um, yeah, trying to remember who's the main actor in that one. Sorry, I don't have it in front of me. Um, there's I a lot of really recognizable faces in this. That's one thing that makes it fun too. 
Yeah, uh, it's uh, David David Hewlett, who's also in The Shape of Water, and um, uh, he he's he's a character actor. He's been in a whole bunch of things. He was also in Rise of Planet of the Apes, mm, yeah, um, Stargate, things like that. Yeah, so that's Graveyard Rats. Um, the next one, and that's the shortest one. It's only thirty seven minutes. Um, the next one was The Autopsy by David Pryor. Um, and this stars F. Murray Abraham and Glenn Turman. This is maybe the Pacific Northwest. I'm not quite sure. Um, but there's uh, been a series of dead bodies. There's been a mine explosion. And the sheriff is investigating all these events and asks his friend, who is a medical examiner, to come in and do an autopsy and try to figure out. Hold on. Um, I'm trying to think like, so basically there's something to do with the company not wanting to pay off the yeah. claims to the families. And so if he can find evidence that the accident was not man caused, then the families can get the money that's coming to them or something like yeah. that. So this, this is actually, uh, I think it's set in Pennsylvania oh, okay. um, because that, that that's the sense. source of like the mines and the, the coal mining and everything. And, and there's also, too. <laughs> there's a... <laughs> but yes, there's, it's, yeah, there's, there's also a reference to they, at one point they refer to uh, an onion snow and oh, this yeah, is apparently... I don't know what that is. This this is okay. So I I actually had to look this up, and my mother is from Pennsylvania, and she was like, "Here's what it is. Um, it it is a it's the last kind of big snow before the spring. So it's it's a Pennsylvania Dutch expression originally that is oh. kind of in reference to the point you've already planted the spring onions, and the spring onions are beginning to come up. Um, and then there's a snow, so it's an onion snow. It's a snow that kind of buries the spring onions. So it's it's like the last the last snow before the beginning of um uh of actual spring. Okay. I yeah, I had never heard that expression before and the last time I saw snow was like 1999. So, you know. <laughs> you got to you got to come to the northeast for Christmas sometime. Like just like first if, if you do, it'll probably be the one time it's just like, "Ah, we have no snow. It's just really fucking cold." By the way, I'm joking. I go to Sundance usually, so and it snows well in there. So, there you go. but the the autopsy, I th that this is one of my favorite episodes, I think, um, because it is so, it's so again juicy. It's so like it goes <laughs> into the specifics of how autopsies on dead bodies are performed, mm -hmm. and I was like, I do not need to know this much. I do not need to see this much, and uh, and and when you actually get to to like what is happening and what the the horror is, as it were, it's very creepy and it's very well done. Like, and yeah. I think that you know F. Murray Abraham really carries the entire because it's it's primarily him for a good bit of the um uh, a good bit of the episode. Yeah, and, he's alone through a lot of it, and yeah. listening to him narrate exactly what he's doing throughout this autopsy is part of what makes it so compelling to watch. Yeah, it, it's it's very like he gives a great character performance and uh, it's very creepy. I, I quite enjoyed that one. Yeah. Yeah, that one's good. Um, And then they then we have The Outside, which was directed by Anna Lily Amirpour, who directed A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. And this was one, okay. this was one of my favorites. I have not seen it yet. I'm sorry. Oh, OK. <laughs> All right. Well, I won't don't, say a lot because I don't, don't want to give it away. Don't tell us too much. 
but basically it's about this awkward girl who um you know she it's play it's uh kate masuti um i'm probably saying that wrong um anyway she's really she's awkward she's shy she really wants to fit in she works at a bank and she really wants to fit in with her uh her colleagues but they're all you know these like glam quote unquote glamorous women like in her view they're all just like so beautiful and they're so well dressed and and their houses are cool and they talk about such interesting things and she's always on the outside of it and she really wants to fit in and she ends up getting this one takes place at christmas she ends up getting invited to gina's one of the main um the like kind of the the ringleader of this group and she gets invited to gina's christmas party and she's so excited and she really wants to go and gina gives out gifts to everybody and it is this like the secret of her you know beauty and it's this particular skin lotion and so everyone starts putting it on they're all just like enjoying it and stacy immediately breaks out in an allergic reaction and um she goes home and and she's just really sad about this not working out and um for for reasons she continues to use it even though her skin is flaming red and her poor husband is just like stop just stop doing this and um anyway it's it's basically her obsession with beauty um leads to some consequences and it's it's really good because um, I mean, she's not alone in this. She doesn't, she, she interacts with other people. It's not like the autopsy where she spends a lot of the movie by herself, but, um, but there's so much introspection happening and you understand this internal struggle that she has and this obsession that she develops as she's searching for what she thinks is going to be the thing that changes her life. And, um, it's, it's so well done. It's funny, but it's also um a little bit tragic and it's also um creepy and it's it's a it's a perfect blend and it's really great work from uh from Amir Poor. So I I love it. Dan Steven is also in it. Martin Starr is in it too. And um yeah, just a fun one. So I can't wait for you to watch that. I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, we I I admit that we skipped over that one in our viewing because I really wanted to watch the Lovecraft adaptations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of Lovecraft, so the next one is Pikmin's Model, which is directed by Keith Thomas, who directed the most recent um, remake of Fire. Well, the remake of Firestarter just recently. Um, and why don't you talk about Pikmin's Model? Uh, so Pikmin's model is based on on a Lovecraft story, and it's basically about a um, an artist at Miskatonic University. And I was so excited; I was like, "Miskatonic!" <laughs> I know. As soon as I saw that, I was like, "Oh, I know what's going to happen." <laughs> uh, I was I was so excited about that. I was just like, "Yay, getting getting Lovecraft!" Um, yeah, and so so he's Will is is a is an artist, and um, in one of his life drawing classes, he meets Pikmin who is who paints things as draws things and paints things as he sees them and basically will becomes obsessed with pikmin's portraiture and uh and is just horrified by it because he keeps on seeing all of these horrific things that pikmin is, is claiming that he's seeing 
And as the the story goes on, I don't want to give too much away because it's such it's such a well done adaptation of Lovecraft. Even if you've read the story, this it goes deeper in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um. But uh. But the the idea is that basically these are the things that Pikmin is seeing kind of beyond reality at some level. And uh, and Will gets more and more involved in these these paintings and this art, and is getting more obsessed and is horrified by it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it. I think you know I've seen this couple of people say this, and I I agree with them. I think it's one of the best Lovecraft adaptations I've ever seen. Um, it really gets at you know when we talk about Lovecraft, it, it can be it can be difficult with, to adapt Lovecraft for all kinds of reasons. Among them being the fact that so many of his monsters are basically like this thing was so horrible <laughs> that you can't you I cannot even describe how horrible it was. So you get these like non you're just like okay, but what it doesn't you just it was the worst thing you've ever seen in your life. But you can, if you saw it, you would go insane. <laughs> and so that's difficult to do on film. Uh, but I think that this one does a really good job at kind of getting to that uncanniness and that sense of like the you know this this whole truth beyond what our mortal eyes can see kind of thing in in a way that really gets at that the despair and the horror that is at the core of some of Lovecraft's best work um you know and there are all kinds of what one of the things with Lovecraft is that there are all kinds of problems with his his writing and who he was and the stuff that he was working with but when you can get to kind of the the good elements of it and and kind of dismiss or throw away the bad um it's it's great horror and uh this this one in particular i think is just really great horror filmmaking yeah yeah well and i mean right off the bat i knew we were going to be in for a treat by the fact that they cast crispin glover in this as pikmin like he's he's perfect he's so perfect perfect. no one else could have played that role the same (laughs) he's perfect because he's just like i'm fascinated by you and also you are creepier than fuck (laughs) yeah yeah exactly so great choice we also had another lovecraft adaptation and this was directed by katherine hardwick that is dreams in the witch house why don't and you talk about that one again on the other side of, of lovecraft adaptations the the i think that these two do a really great job at balancing out the two different sides of lovecraft um the one side of just like this real despairing creepiness that is is at the bottom you know this this horror of the abyss sort of thing um and then dreams in the witch house which is gets at the inherent silliness of a lot of it but at the same time manages to make it very creepy and everything so you've got um what's his name rupert grint playing uh playing a young man who loses his twin sister when he's a child and he sees her when after she dies he sees her basically sees her ghost her body dragged off into some netherworld that's like a, a a bizarre forest um and this results in him deciding that he is going to um pursue spiritualism essentially for the rest of his life to try and and find his sister and to locate her and to bring her back and the and this leads him into you know seances it leads him to looking for spiritualists and finally leads him to the witch house um and the the use of a drug which he gets from like nondescript native a native person uh who you know kind of gives him this drug that enables him to kind of access this forest and search for his sister um again don't want to go into too many details because i think it takes so many interesting twists and turns but 
I this this does get it like I said the that other side of Lovecraft I think that is a little bit silly a little bit like extreme that kind of realm of dreams and of weirdness that is just weird mm-hmm. uh i also really liked the fact and as i was watching this i was just like oh lovecraft would be so mad um there are a lot of people of color in this and they are heroic figures they're good figures they're positive figures they're helpful mm-hmm. uh and they're important and they are not and they're not simply there to you know build up the the white character lovecraft would be so mad <laughs> And also it was directed uh, by a woman. <laughs> and it was directed by a woman. Yeah. So you've got all of this kind of smushed together. Uh, I really liked kind of the way that Hardwick uses that edge of of parody almost or of humor um, as a part of this to kind of be like, you know, this is silly at some level, but it's also real and it's also creepy. And there's there's a use of a rat that is just very distressing to me. <laughs> uh, and, and I remembered away it away from graveyard rats. <laughs> yes and it, it it i remembered this from the story because i just like oh no i know i know exactly what is coming and i don't like it <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's um very very well done i think one of the things that i um i mean i agree with absolutely everything you just said and i think one thing that i want to add is that i really like when um stories are able to touch on how people willingly um not necessarily realizing that they're doing it, but they basically just they they get so consumed with grief and with their own trauma that they they become paralyzed in their lives. And that's exactly what happens with Rupert Grint's character here. And I think that it's um it's actually good work from Rupert Grant. I'm glad to see him doing something. He's interesting in Servant too, which is a show on Apple TV Plus. Um, but I'm glad to see that he's been able to break out of that Ron Weasley Harry Potter role. Um because I think he's doing some really interesting work, and I, I like yeah. what Catherine Hardwick did with him here. So, yeah. Um, the next one was The Viewing, which was directed by Panos Cosmatos, who uh, I have not seen Mandy, but apparently this reminded a lot of people of Mandy. Um, this was probably my least favorite out of all of them. Um and I think part of the problem for me was that I was getting distracted because it just wasn't holding my attention. <laughs> so uh, I don't know that I can speak too intelligently to it. I think it does do some interesting uh, visual stuff. But it's basically this group of people sitting in a perfect sunken living room. We need to bring those back uh, and having a conversation like a philosophical conversation while they're doing all kinds of drugs and um then there's a monster involved and I, I don't I did not like this one so I don't want to say a lot because I'm sure other people did and you haven't seen it yet I don't think right no I haven't seen it yet unfortunately okay yeah, yeah. We've now gone we've now gone beyond the ones that I've seen I tried so hard <laughs> <laughs> that is okay um yeah I, I I probably should watch it again because maybe I just I don't know I just think I wasn't in the mood for it but um yeah that one didn't work but the one that absolutely did work for me that was my very favorite out of the entire series was and and i liked all of them except for probably the viewing but my very favorite was the murmuring which is the final episode um directed by jennifer kent and this is a couple played by sc davis who worked with kent in um the babadook 
um, and Andrew Lincoln. They play this couple. They are ornithologists, and um, they are trying to get over a profound loss that they've had in their lives. And um, they end up at this house out in the middle of nowhere, this big, big, rich house. Um, nobody really knows why it was built where it was, but it's very isolated. And they're studying this very particular type of bird. And um, the wife starts to hear and see things that um, seem ghostly, but she doesn't believe in ghosts, so it couldn't possibly be that. And um, it's basically as the as this story goes along, it's you see the rifts between this couple that have formed because of the loss that they've suffered. Um, and you see the ways that each of them is dealing with that, and neither of them are doing it in a very healthy way. Um, but it, it leads to some very really like the reason this is my favorite is because I just think that Jennifer Kent does such a, such a great job of telling stories within stories. And this is a, you know, a woman who is, is dealing with her grief while trying to help someone else process theirs. And it's, uh. It's just, it's, it's very, very good. I just, ah, I wish you'd seen it because <laughs> I really want to talk about it. But... I'm, I'm sorry. Well, we can okay. talk about it more next week when, okay. after I've seen it because I will have seen everything by then. Okay. I apologize. That's okay. I, yeah, no, I totally get it. I know. There's other stuff I didn't get to watch this week that I wanted to. And it's just, apparently there's only still 24 hours in a day and I don't know why this seems unfair. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I just, I think Jennifer Kent is such a, such a fantastic filmmaker she hasn't directed enough movies and i don't know why she's not getting just like here you go make whatever you want because everything that she does is just really beautiful it's it's sad it's it's dark it's tragic and it's just profound and i really think she's a fascinating writer and director and we get, especially from S.E. Davis, but also from Andrew Lincoln, just really beautiful, heartbreaking performances, too. Mm. So, yeah, um, we got a question about Cabinet of Curiosities from Connor, uh, who said, I've sort of been thinking of each episode like a movie, even though many are shorter than what we would consider feature length. Um, do you think it's reasonable to consider such anthology series that are around an hour long each as a sequence of films. This could apply to small acts or the Decalogue or similar series. If you don't agree, does it devalue the medium of television and what it's capable of to try and recategorize things away from TV? Um, what are your thoughts, Lauren? I, you know, I've actually been thinking about this question off and on since we got it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and because I'm of two minds, I, I think I, I do think each of these are very much standalone episodes. Like you can watch them independently of each other. And in um, any order. Yeah. And in any order. Exactly. At, at the same time, they are definitely, like I say, in dialogue with each other and in dialogue with the entirety, with the entirety of the series, the whole construct of the series. Right. Mm -hmm. So you've got this whole concept of the cabinet of curiosities. Yeah. Which um, Del Toro introduces each yeah. piece. So and, yeah. and he he kind of connects them and he gives them sort of a context. And um and then, you know, it's interesting because each set of films as they've been released have also been really, you know, they've been released in, in packets. But see the first two, you know, we've got these kind of shorter 
little kind of like I say nasty horror stories, right? And then the net, and then you get um, ones ones that are more a little bit longer, more thematically connected. This whole idea of isolation, right? And then you've got the the Lovecraft ones, which have you know that that relationship to each other. And and so, like I say, and, and I think the the two Lovecraft stories represent different sides of the Lovecraft mythos, as it were. Um, so each little packet of films, each you know whatever two hours or so, uh, are connected with each other. So they are of a piece, right? But at the same time, they're independent. So this is one of those where I'm like, I think you can look at this either way. And you can probably look at each of these films as independent films and and view them that way. But it's also really interesting to view them as a part of each other. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of devaluing, like one of the things that I actually really like about streaming is that it is beginning to... Uh, it means that filmmakers have a greater degree of flexibility in what they're doing. So we get series that are, you know, we get this whole concept of limited series. We get, you know, single stories that are just pulled out for a, a long period of time, or we get things like this that are episodic and that are individual films, but are connected to each other at the same time. So I, I kind of would balk at categorizing them necessarily. I think that it's forming into its own independent concept. Um, and, and we've had a little bit of that before the death. So we kind of references the Decalogue or um, you know, Bergman's Fanny and Alexander or uh, uh, scenes from a marriage, things like that. So we've had things like this before, but it's reaching a point, particularly with the advent of streaming where we're getting different approaches to the way that media that film tells a story that cinema tells a story and i i would kind of bulk at cat at saying okay this is film this is television at this point yeah. that's my feeling about it yeah it, the the lines have become so blurred i mean these are um these are episodes of a tv series intentionally but also they are each short films um i guess 60 minutes is feature length so one or two of them might actually technically qualify as feature. Um, but most of them technically are actually, wait, no, I think feature length is 40 minutes. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, but uh, I think that the lines are so blurred that it almost doesn't matter. And I don't think that it devalues television to, to call these movies. I mean, we've had made for TV movies for decades. Um, it used to be that made-for-TV movies very much were made-for-TV movies. You know, like they had kind of a, yeah. a different look from from film. Um, they were usually not filmed on film. Um, you know, they they tended to not have the same kinds of budgets and the same kinds of casts and things like that. But over the years, and like you said, with the with the proliferation of streaming those lines have become blurred even more mm -hmm. and what can be done with television is so much bigger than what was ever possible before or what people cared to do before like part of it is that there's so much money in television now that you get a-list directors and a-list stars willing to to work in tv now um when they wouldn't have before because that's not where the money was um yeah. and well i i sorry. i think i think we need to step away from this. I think that part of the, the reason for these categorizations is because we still have this mentality of television is lesser in some way right. than film, mm -hmm. right? So, 
and and it doesn't matter. So like, and we still have that attitude when it comes to streaming. You know, even though streaming has changed the way that we watch, yeah, and it's changed the way that we experience art, film, television, all kinds of things, right? And we need to stop saying like, you know, straight to streaming because it sounds like, you know, oh, we're basically devaluing it. We're saying like, this isn't important at some right. level. And we need to step away from that, I think. And to, to be like, these all have value. There's good, there's good art, there's bad art, there's mediocre art, there's, you know, all of that. But, but because it's te quote television or because it's film does not say that it is more valuable or less valuable everything is valuable and we need to treat it kind of on the same playing field. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One other thing, in addition to story elements and, and, and the introduction of Del Toro, um, another thing that ties all of these anthology episodes together is the fact that they have some crossover in crew, like Tamara Deverell does the production design for all eight episodes and so you have some through lines there. You have some similarities with um, or some crossover with costume and makeup and stuff like that, too. So it's like aesthetically, there's a lot that ties all of these together as well. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that considering each one an individual movie, which is certainly what's going to happen when the Emmys come around, they're all going to be submitted as TV movies. I think that's totally fair. But I also think these are very much um, part of television. Like they they really do. Um, fit into both categories and each one of them is just so good and I don't think that it devalues I think that where where we run the risk of devaluing the medium uh, is by saying this is just a tv series it's that mm -hmm. use of the word just you know yeah. so yeah. yeah I agree with that the point is they're all good I didn't love the viewing <laughs> but the rest of them are great and I liked them so uh, you should watch this show uh, or these movies or however you want to think of it. It's fine. <laughs> but watch them. <laughs> uh, any final thoughts, Lauren, before we wrap things up? No, I mean, most of the films that we've talked about are, are available, in fact, on streaming. Uh, mm -hmm. Not just Cabinet of Curiosities, but, you know, Devil's Backbone, Kronos, uh, Crimson Peak, I think Pan's Labyrinth is on, um, like you said, it's on HBO Max. Uh, so you can actually watch most of Del Toro's output. Yeah, you can pretty much, anything that he's directed, I think, um, as far as feature films, uh, I'm, I'm not, I don't think there's anything that's not available. Um, Hellboy's on HBO Max. Uh, yeah, they're all out there. So, um, yes, watch them. And just in general, watch more movies. Always. So, yeah. Please watch more movies because I'm getting tired of arguing with people who obviously have not watched enough movies. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, all right. So that is going to wrap things up for this week. Uh, we would like to thank our patrons who help keep things going. They are Ali, Brian, Connor, Estefania, Heather, James, Kathleen, Carriotta, Mason, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. If you would like to become a patron yourself, you can go to patreon.com slash citizendame and subscribe. And if you do that, you get access to our episodes early, two days early. Uh, you also get bonus episodes and other stuff. We have our most recent uh, bonus episode is out now, and that is on Adam's Family Values. And we'll have something noirish very soon um, for Noir November, too. So 
lots of fun things coming there. Um, you can also find stuff on our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizendamepod, and you can donate through Ko-Fi if you don't want to make a commitment. Uh, Ko-Fi.com slash citizendame. Be sure to check out our website. Um, I have just been in a mood recently, and I've been writing stuff. So <laughs> all kinds of stuff there, and I've got more things. I'm working on my review of Tar. I've been working on it for like a month, it feels like. There's so much to say about that movie. So, um, But yeah, you can go to citizendamepod.com and find our recent reviews. We're bringing back the Citizen Dame 5, finally. Um, and instead of us each contributing five things every week, we're going to kind of take turns on it. So it's going to be lists of five things, usually on Wednesdays with different themes, but um, we're going to take turns. And if you ever have a suggestion of what we could write about please be sure to send those our way there's lots of ways to contact us we have our email citizendamepod at gmail.com and you can find us on social media twitter and instagram we are at citizendamepod and letterboxd we are at citizendame lauren where can people find you if they want to talk to you by yourself (laughs) and follow you down dark alleys that's that's the creepiest way of introducing this um I am on Twitter and Instagram for now, at least uh, at LH Business, <laughs> and I'm also on Letterboxd at LH Business. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're still on Twitter. We're still using Twitter, but we don't know how long. We'll see how this goes. It's, there may be some. There may be some fragmentation of various social media, which I actually think is a good thing. So yeah. we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. I am also on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. And uh, that is it for this week. We hope you all, by the time you're listening to this, have had a wonderful Halloween. And uh, we will catch you in November. Yay! Bye. I believe that there's a simple rule that I found to be truth after 58 years in this world. Hatred and fear are mirrors. Love is windows. Every time you hate somebody, it's a mirror. Every time you fear somebody, it's a mirror. When you love somebody, they're a window to an entire world you don't know. Like you meet somebody and if you view people as a window, if you can give them that license, you pour yourself into them and everything is eradicated, the differences, which are all illusions, right? So horror allows you to recognize you. This is you. Horror is very, is very uh, healing. Mm-hmm. And that it tells you there is a whole side they don't tell you about in in in, in life, socially. It's not and it's a side that is real. Mm-hmm.